As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the 3-0 Show, part of the Athletic Baseball Show for Thursday, November 16th. Jam-packed episode. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, Katie Wu here with you on this Thursday. Of course, it is awards season, so we'll share our thoughts on the awards that have been given out. And we're going to give out two awards of our own because it seemed very appropriate to make up awards and send imaginary trophies to a few players. Who doesn't want an imaginary trophy? A lot of player movement because we had a 40-man roster deadline this week, and we've got more deadlines coming. So we got a few small trades. we got some signings. We're going to get to a Thanksgiving draft, time permitting, on this episode as well. So let's have some fun. Let's talk about award season, which is currently at the Cy Young Award winner phase. We're recording on Wednesday afternoon, so we know who the Rookie of the Year award winners are. Eno's favorite award, Manager of the Year, that was out on Tuesday. So we know Julio Rodriguez, American League Rookie of the Year. Michael Harris, National League Rookie of the Year. Eno, you said you had some thoughts on the NL Award in particular. So I'll go to you first. What are your thoughts about Michael Harris getting that award over Spencer Strider? Well, I mean, congratulations to Julio and to Michael Harris. They both had excellent seasons. I think they're both excellent young players. And I don't really have anything to take away with them except that I think that Spencer Strider had like a legendary season. Like, you know, it's like Michael Harris, a good season that could win rookie of the year any year. Spencer Strider was legendary. Uh, I have a couple notes here. So Spencer Strider uh, just set the record for rookie strikeout rate by a starting pitcher. 38%. He struck out, struck out 38% of the people he saw. The closest is Stephen Strasburg with 34% in his rookie uh, he's the first rookie since you Darvish and one of five rookies to have 200 strikeouts in their rookie season in the free agency era. Um, and, uh, for the sort of comparison of like, oh, well, one posts up every day and the other one just sort of lollygags about for four days and just shows up on the fifth day. Uh, I would like to point out that, um, Harris had 441 plate appearances. Strider affected 528 plate appearances. That's how many batters he faced. Of course, 
there's a play in the field, and Harris had those 255 plays in the outfield. However, I would point out to you that even uh, if you look sort of closely at the numbers, uh, even something like outs above average or stat cast defensive stats, uh, say the difference uh, between Harris and someone more average in center field is something on the order of 10 plays. So you take the 441 plate appearances, you give him the 10 plays that really differentiate himself from the other center fielders, and you still don't get the 528 plate appearances in which Spencer Strider struck out nearly 40% of the batters he saw. Sorry. End rant. Okay. <laughs> I will present a possible solution to what appears to be a reasonable problem. Let's say we had Rookie of the Year awards for hitter and pitcher. More awards. Would that satisfy you? Because I think we are making an apples to oranges comparison in the first place. And it's it, this comes down to this in, in the MVP and Cy Young voting sometimes too. When we have an extraordinary pitching season, sometimes we have that player on MVP ballots and people get really upset about that too. So Katie, have I offered a reasonable solution to an actual problem or have I just taken a problem and made it worse? Uh, maybe both. I don't know. I've, I've always kind of believed for rookie of the year, but this is certainly not a hill that I'll die on that position players are valued a little bit more highly because they are on the field every single day. I never really thought of the, the plate appearances versus impacted plate appearances that, Eno just broke down. So now I feel like that argument that I have is pretty done. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I think with, with rookie of the year, especially, I think we're totally fine and just continuing to have the same debate. It makes it fun. Between, you know, I, and I thought this was a perfect example with Spencer Strider and Michael Harris, especially of them being on the same team. You could really see the value of them specific to Atlanta. Uh, I kind of like the way the awards are, are now. And one thing I like about it is that it does bring these kind of discussions. Uh, I don't really think that like MVP, we see a lot of debate with MVP every year because the term valuable, that word is subjective. It's how do you define the word you, the voter, you, the fan as valuable like what what's your definition of that is it most valuable to your team is it the best overall player things like that i think those are good healthy debate for the sport so i would personally wouldn't really change anything for the awards could we all agree that manager of the year should be an award that goes away <laughs> i mean i don't uh, it's already a tough enough job let them have it i just uh i just don't enjoy i just don't enjoy voting for it and uh and hope it's never given to me again because I think we have a really, really hard time uh, putting value on uh, an, a manager. And I think it, you know some of the some of what happens is here's a, here's actually a wrinkle that I think might be interesting. And I don't know if it's possible in terms of like how these things work, but could we vote on manager of the year at the end of the year? Would that matter? I don't know. I think you should get a few bonus points for like making the postseason and then making maybe a little bit of a run in the postseason. I don't know. Uh, I just think that the manager's job doesn't really necessarily end at the end of the season. Um, and so there was a couple guys this year where it might have made a difference to to add in the postseason. But either way, uh, I don't have a problem with who voted for uh, what the people voted for, because I don't have any idea who a good manager is necessarily. I think that people think they know who a good manager is, and I, I think they're wrong. This was I had the National League manager, manager of the Year vote this year, and it was really tough. It required for me a lot of phone calls, a lot of conversations with different organizations. I mean, I think it was reflected in the overall voting how close it was. And for me, it's how really, did you what sort of questions did you ask? I asked because for me, for managing, 
it's it, it differs depending on each organization in terms of the role each manager plays. There's not a mm. uniform set. Some managers are more involved with the day to day. Some of them rely more on the front office and some of them work pretty 50 50. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my first questions I ask is how hands on is the manager? What are their in game responsibilities? What are they responsible for? What are they not? And it's really hard to compare all these different variables for one award, because when you look at the three finishers, when you look at Buckshaw Walter for the National League, Buckshaw Walter, Dave Roberts, and Brian Snicker, I mean, those are all three completely different managers, both in style and in role. And you can easily make the argument that Ali Marmol or Rob Thompson, uh, Rob Thompson, Thompson should be on there as well. And I was also a little surprised that Bob Melvin only received one third place vote. But these are all but six there's... different managers, completely different uh, styles, completely different sets of uh, rules and how do they operate. It's really hard to quantify that into one singular vote. Yeah. And I, you know, I wonder if um, Ali Marmo was hurt by the perception that he replaced Mike Schilt in order to be more of a uh, the organizational man, if you know what I'm saying, right, like somebody right. who would uh, basically enact the front office's policies uh, without complaining. I mean, that's that seems to be what kind of happened with Schilt that he said no uh, too many times, and and so so you know the Cardinals were great. They they, they outdid their uh, they outdid their expectations, and yet people didn't necessarily vote for Ollie because maybe they saw that as more reflection of the front office's decisions than than the managers and. You know, I guess Buck, for whatever reason, you know, gets that that sheen of the old school manager that does more of it and makes more of the decisions um, where I think, uh, you know, I think Dave Roberts is somewhere in between. I, I think there's a lot of collaborative process, quote unquote, between Dave Roberts and the front office when they make their decisions. Yeah, I think what each organization wants from its manager is a, a big part of why settling on who deserves to win this award each year is is so challenging and it's more of like a, a dull challenge for me than like a i don't know is is wordle hard i don't think wordle's hard it's fun it's not wordle's a fun, fun challenge <laughs> right well i think i think there's actually something a little bit inherently problematic too because i think one of the things that makes a manager good is how well he he handles the media yes <laughs> so now you're like you're like okay media you vote on who's the manager of the year and well, you know, I like that guy. <laughs> you know, Buck says hilarious things, so I'm going to give Buck my vote. He lets us hang out after the session, you know, and and get to know him a little better. <laughs> you know, I've seen I've, I've been in on those sessions. Those are really fun. And I tend to like those managers better. <laughs> I don't know if it's been if it's biased to a vote of mine yet, but I could see how that easily would bias a vote. I'm just happy that you're willing to admit that. <laughs> Let's give out some hardware of our own. Most surprising player of 2022. Any player, it could be a hitter or a pitcher, either league. Everybody was uh, eligible for this award. Katie, who are you giving this award to? So I'm going to stick to my Cardinals roots, and I picked Albert Pujols for my most surprising players of 2022 because not that I was surprised by Albert Pujols by any means. I mean, when you have a career of that legacy, and caliber, you know what the expectations are. But I think so much of the outside perception when St. Louis first brought Albert back for one final year was, okay, it's the reunion. It's the last hurrah. Bring it all back where it starts. If anything, it'll sell tickets. I I know internally there was a pretty bold uh, assumption that he was going to impact the team. I don't think anyone externally thought that he would do what he did. I mean, we I remember early in the season, there was some debate if he'd even pass A-Rod. And what does he do? Hits 700, finishes with 703 home runs, has a 
an OPS in the second half of 1.103, one of the top in baseball. I mean, he completely turned the trajectory around of the Cardinals' second half season. And that was so surprising for me because so many times when we see teams in any sport brought back to the organization where they first started or were the most influential, we see them kind of flame out. And it really is a reunion farewell, thanks for everything tour. But for Albert, I mean, having a, a press box seat to watch it every day, for me, it was like Albert saying like, no, I can, I can still do this. And fans were thanking him instead of, you know, him thanking the fans, how these re- things usually turn out. So for me, that was really surprising just to see how well it ended, uh, not counting the postseason, um, but the how his career ended in St. Louis and what he was able to accomplish in that final season. Uh, I just thought that was a complete treat, not just for St. Louis, but just for baseball. And I thought he was dust when the Angels parted ways with him last year. I was surprised that the Dodgers brought him in. I think it became really clear to me how much he was still respected in every big league clubhouse since he's a player that many current players grew up watching. I mean, peak Albert Pujols, the machine hitting lasers all over the ballpark was that guy for this current generation of players. And even if you go back to the end of June, Albert Pujols had a 198, 294, 336 line as a part-time player through the first three months of the season. There had to be legitimate debates internally about possibly letting him go mid-season and giving those plate appearances to someone else. And it was like the calendar flipped to July and we got to see a pretty magical run from Pujols. I think he's a great choice for this award. It was a great story for all of baseball. And I say that as someone who comes from rooting for a different team in that division. In and that I, division, I wanted to see yeah. him reach 700. I wanted to see it happen, even though it was in the midst of a, a battle for the NL Central, because so often players of that caliber with contracts like that hang on for so long that they're a shell of the player they were at their peak. And we remember them at the end of their career as guys that really even in many cases shouldn't be collecting those plate appearances anymore. So to see some of that magic again, even for a half season well worth it. So I think that's a great call. How about you, you know? Well, yeah, Pools is the uh, story of the year that in this in this regard, in terms of surprising. And I think he was actually saved by the fact he's right-handed because his splits against lefties were not as bad in, even in June. And there was still like, well, we can keep him around just for lefties. And that 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 kept him around just long enough to, to hit a, a great streak. And uh, really happy for him. That's a really great selection. Um, I picked uh, Dansby Swanson. Um, and he did it in just the right time uh, in a career uh, contract year, uh, but he almost doubled his previous high in, in Fangraph's wins above replacement, and he did double his previous high in defensive value. And yeah, I'm sure I could go and find examples of guys who had one-year pops in defensive value, but it really lines up with the subjective that we heard that he really worked on his defense and that it was a priority for him. Um, and, uh, it's, it's just really impressive to me, uh, to see someone that, um, you know, just take the one flaw. I love those stories. Like Mike Trout comes up, he's amazing, but he's, you can still get him out the high fastball. And he's like, uh, hold on. Uh, I'm gonna spend the off season on this one. And he comes back and he can hit the high fastball. I got that sort of, uh, vibe from Dansby Swanson's improvement on defense. So, um, I don't know if I, I believe in it 1,000% going forward. I think it's something that's really interesting to think about in the context of uh, signing him to a big contract because he's got bottom-tier arm strength and something we've talked about on Rates and Barrels before. But 
Um, you know, I do, I do think that he might end up being the bargain of the big four uh, shortstops that's out there because he's going to cost a little less. And, uh, you know, just in the context of the five biggest improvers in Fangraph's war from last year to this year, it was Aaron Judge, number one. <laughs> uh, number two was Eugenio Suarez, who had a great year. Number three was Nolan Arenado, uh, also a, a nice resurgent year. Number four was Manny Machado. And number five was Dansby Swanson. So uh, that's a, a nice list to be on, perfectly timed. Uh, and, uh, you know, kudos to him for taking basically one of his only flaws and, and turning it around. Yeah, I think he did everything a little bit better across the board, sort of consolidated existing skills and then added a few new ones this year. And that is going to make him a very wealthy person in the very near future. Uh, Andres Jimenez gets my award. I bet if you kept going down that list of most improved war from last season to this season, you're probably going to hit his name in the next few because he was kind of an up and down guy in 2021. Didn't look like he was going to be an impact big leaguer just based on that 218, 282, 351 line we saw in his first season with the Guardians. He ends up being a six war player this year. He had power, he had speed. Nearly doubled up on the barrel rate. I think that was the big question with Jimenez. Was he going to hit the ball hard enough to be a good everyday player? And now when you look back at the Francisco Lindor trade, you say, whoa, hey, Cleveland saw something that they believed in with Jimenez, or at least were pleasantly surprised by the ceiling that he has shown now in what has only been two seasons with Cleveland. But the K rate has improved, the power being better, defensively, you know, good defensive player as well. Uh, I didn't see him as this kind of player. I thought he'd be a two to three war player if everything came together. So maybe he's a, a tougher sell for an award like this because he's still so young. Someone taking a step forward in their age 23 season isn't that surprising, but it's just a higher ceiling than I thought Jimenez had previously. Yeah, it's fun, a uh, fun uh, piece of growth there from him. And not to uh, mess with your rundown, but since there's so much on it, I think I'd just like to squeeze this one in here. The Guardians just traded Nolan Jones, a guy who strikes out 30% of the time, but barrels 15% of the time. He's one of these big slugging guys. Um, and they just traded him for Juan Brito, uh, a second baseman in the uh, Rockies organization. They did it at the 40-man deadline. It might have said something to do with uh, you know the fact that Juan Brito had to be put on the 40-man. But uh, really, it has more to do with organizational philosophies. I think the Guardians were like, "Hey, we don't really dig this thirty percent strikeout rate thing. We we don't we don't we, that's not the kind of player we're looking for." Um, and instead, give us a, a young guy who hasn't really shown great power yet, uh, but makes great contact, has a good eye at the plate, and plays second base. That fits our organization better. So maybe they get Andres Jimenez, you know, part two uh, at this last deadline in Juan Brito. So something something to watch. Yeah, so I think there's a, a broader question with Nolan Jones, and it maybe connects to another move that just happened on Wednesday. I wonder if Nolan Jones' long-term outlook as a, an offensive player is a profile similar to that of Teoscar Hernandez. The Blue Jays has traded Teoscar Hernandez with one season in 2023 before free agency to Seattle. And when you look at the offensive profile, you see a guy that hits the ball really hard, has a high strikeout rate, doesn't really walk as much as you'd like him to, not much defensive value. Not much defensive value. I think you can make an argument that Nolan Jones might have a better eye than Teoscar Hernandez, or at least more patience than Teoscar Hernandez had throughout his you know, career, even prior to becoming the player he is now. But I think teams generally just don't value the 28 to 30% K rate masher. I think that's a low value player 
or a more replaceable player in the eyes of many front offices than what you know, War and even WRC Plus tell us about those players. You can be 20 or 30% better than a league average hitter the way Hernandez is. And when you get to that last year of arbitration, even a competitive team says, yeah, you're good, but we can do better with the money we're going to pay you. So we're going to move on. I just think that's a, a really strange thing to see because it kind of pushes against some of the numbers that we see, at least on the public side of how valuable those players are, are supposed to be. I think there's also the the perception that the older you are, if you are a player that profiles for the 30 plus home runs, but also a 30% strikeout rate, if you're younger, teams are willing to take a risk on that. If you have a prospect that's projecting for high power, high strikeout, I think front offices and organizations are more comfortable saying, okay, let's bring him up and see what we can do because there's a chance as he grows, as he develops, that strikeout rate diminishes and he controls, you know, his, his pitch selection, the approach, those things can get better with development and they often do. But when you're approaching your final year before free agency or you are approaching your mid-20s and that development starts to kind of reach its peak, that's where front offices kind of pump the brake and say, okay, there's, of course, huge value in the power. But if the strikeouts are, if we're not seeing any improvement in the strikeout rate, that might change the overall perception if there hasn't really been that improvement over a, you know X amount of years of time. Yeah, and I'll, I also know that like teams are also looking at all these rule changes that we're we're seeing coming, um, and the the broader thrust of the of the rule changes are for a more athletic game. You know, when you look at stealing bases, making the bases bigger, making the base pass shorter, throwovers, pitch clocks, no shift. All of this is trying to get more balls in play and put an emphasis on defense and speed. Um, and I know that teams are sort of thinking about, should we rethink our value system? Should we be pushing for better athletes at every position? Should we be ahead of these changes uh, rather than reacting to them? Um, and so you may be seeing some of that uh, in between the lines. Maybe the Guardians in particular, that approach seems like it's really set up for, you know, everyone can run around the bases, make contact, and we're ready for, you know, you know Theo Ball Part 2, whatever Theo Epstein's trying to come up with all these these rule changes. I think the funny thing about Nolan Jones, though, is that he seems to have more tools than advertised. He's in the 100th percentile in arm strength. He's in the 68th percentile in sprint speed. So it's not like he's this, this heavy-footed plotter out there. He mm-hmm. can do a lot of things aside from hit the ball hard. And I, I would agree with, with Katie's point. Age is huge here. I think teams would much rather, especially because of the way cost works with arbitration, they'd much rather be a year too soon to trade away a Teoscar Hernandez than a year too late and to rely on that player for 500 plate appearances when when it all falls apart, when the K rate jumps from the 30% range to the mid-30 range, and all of a sudden, it's too much. It breaks. Like The, the attrition rate on a player like that is, is a little bit scary, and the downside is is considerable. A big comp on Teoscar Hernandez that should make people shiver a little is uh, Chris Davis, the K. Uh, You've got a guy there that uh, isn't very good in the outfield, had a low walk rate, had a high strikeout rate, hit for power, and, you know, had very similar WRC pluses, had very similar production, was about 30% better than the league average, hit 247 every year, uh, but uh, but hit with a bunch of power. And then it uh, and then it disappeared one year. So I think that's uh, a little bit of what's going on. I, I don't I don't actually think Teoscar is going to get a big long contract that's much more than the 14 million he was due this year. So I actually think he's kind of a guy who's being paid exactly kind of nearly close to what he's worth. And so if you have a guy like that, he doesn't have that much trade value. 
So, you know, maybe you're surprised they only brought back a couple of relievers, but you know, that's that sort of fits what the Blue Jays want to do. Also, relievers are pretty expensive on the market right now. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The reliever move there's a lack of movement right now. Everyone's kind of going back to where they were for money that seems to be a little higher than expected. Keith and I talked about Edwin Diaz getting the 5-year deal with the Mets and in the time since then, we've seen a few different guys go right back to where they were. Rafael Montero went back to Houston on a three-year deal. Nick Martinez got a that bigger seems deal expensive. than what he had. That's $33 million dollars for Rafael Montero. I think that's just the market we're in. Everything costs more right now, including relievers. Yeah. Right? It's not just not just the stuff I'm buying at the grocery store. It's signing relievers costs more too. To me, it's really strange because in, in past off seasons, the reliever market's usually the last to get going. And it's definitely not as significantly expensive as we've seen for these setup, man. I remember when the... Cardinals signed a two-year extension to Giovanni Gallegos, who is, yes, the slowest reliever in baseball, but a very effective one at that. They signed him for two years, $15 million, And, you know, everyone walked away thinking that was a good deal all around. And now you're looking at how some of these setup men are coming back. I mean, you look at Suarez with San Diego. It's a huge deal, a huge amount of money. So for me, it's been surprising not just the amount of cash in these deals, but how soon they're happening. Because usually relievers are like okay it's february pitchers and catchers are reporting let's go get a reliever but these are the first guys to go yeah i'm also surprised by the number of years i mean montero for three okay gallegos for two i love it now that i see all these five-year deals five-year deals for suarez five-year deals for diaz let me just tell you the top 10 relievers by fangrass war five years ago kenley jansen okay good craig krimble oh all right roberto asuna mm. Corey knabel pat nishek chad green felipe vasquez he's in jail Andrew Miller, Mike Miner, Anthony Swarzak, Anthony Swarzak. Well, I hope if you did the five-year deal, you weren't going to give it to Anthony Swarzak, but maybe. I mean, Andrew Miller was a guy you might have given a five-year deal to five years ago. So uh, I think five years for, <laughs> is that a cat? Yes. You know, she wants nothing to do with me until the second I turn my camera on. <laughs> cat wants FaceTime. Understandable. But anyway, five years, going five years on a reliever is... Uh, you know, uh, I think that at least one or two of those years are going to feel like, oh, man, we owe him how much? These are not necessarily teams that you would say are dumb. These are actually smart teams that are doing this. Isn't that strange that Houston, of all teams, was the team that gave Rafael Montero the three-year deal? I mean, they, they know him well. They just had him this past season. That surprises me that teams that we regard this way are doing this. I kind of think James Click wouldn't have done it. You know, I know... and. J- James Click traded for Rafael Montero. James Click, you know, spotted Montero and, and wanted him. And yet I don't think he would have signed him to a three-year deal. Rapid trivia question. What did James Click have to trade to get Rafael Montero? Ooh, wait, wait, wait. I know this one. This is kind of a throw-in. It was, uh, oh, it was, did he get Graveman? It was the 2021 Kendall Graveman trade. Yeah. Was... I never would have got that one. Toro. Yeah, it was the Toro. Abraham Toro for Kendall Graveman and Rafael Montero. I forgot that was a they strange came trade at the time. Yeah, I did too. Very strange trade. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get to these signings since we're, we're Wait, in Wait, we had surprising mode. the other way. Oh, we're going to get there. I, you got me thinking about movement now. All right, all right. I done messed up your, your rundown. All this time and effort he puts into that detailed rundown. Out the window. So sorry. It was so well organized that now it's just totally ruined. <laughs> no one knows. Tyler Anderson gets a three-year, $39 million deal. I think this is the next part of the market that we're going to see movement on. The starting pitches are going to start to pick up now. And he was among the players that was extended a qualifying offer. He, of course, rejected it by leaving. And, you know, I think you and I put this out there on Rates and Barrels a while back. One of our listeners, Ryan, pointed it out that the Angels are the kind of team that end up signing Tyler Anderson after a team like the Dodgers brings him in on the one-year deal and tweaks something, gets the career year, and then they move on. To me, this is a, a byproduct of not being good at player development or not being good at scouting or possibly not being good at both. Like this is the cost of being cheap of cutting corners is that you eventually go out and sign guys on multi-year deals. Even if Tyler Anderson, he might be fine for a three year, $39 million deal, but this is, this is the consequence of running the organization the way that Artie Moreno runs the angels. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You just think of like the uh, giants, you know, they, Gossman, you know, they're, they're Rodon, they're going to go through uh, a series of one year deals. The Rays try to do one year deals and, you know, often get good, good value out of those. And the, uh, you know, the Dodgers also try to fill the back end of their rotation one one year deals. I, you know, will they re sign Andrew Haney or will they just let Andrew Haney go after getting, you know, what they, they wanted uh, from his one year deal? Um, you know, there's just a little more risk in a three year deal. And then the other thing that I think of when I look at Tyler Anderson is, He's a guy that has good command and a lot of pitches, but uh, people are betting more on stuff year to year because stuff is stickier year to year. Uh, how you shape your pitches and your velo is, is stickier year to year. How much command you have in any given year kind of comes and goes. has to do with little injuries, I think, hamstrings and backs and things like that. So I would say Tyler Anderson might be fine, uh, but he might also just be a league average pitcher. Maybe that's what they need. Maybe that's what $13 million gets you these days. It's not something that I hate overall. It's just not a type of pitcher that I think the market is looking for. I think much more likely the market is looking for a Carlos Rodon type, where maybe we don't get every year out of this deal. Maybe he's hurt for a year in this deal. But when we do get him, we're much more likely to get a one or a two. You know, why am I going to pay a lot for a five? My, my system should be giving me a five. I think what's interesting is this time last year, the Angels, I don't know if it was this time last year after the lockout, my memory is all a blur because I'm trying to block that out, but they went the exciting, they tried to do it. The Angels tried it with Noah uh-huh, Syndergaard, yeah. and I liked that move when they did it. They, I said, hey, it's a one-year deal. I think giving up draft compensation for a one-year deal was a, a very Angels thing to do, but let's, let's throw that aside for a minute. Mm-hmm. I liked it in terms of it maybe being more like a Carlos Rodon sort of move where you could say, when healthy... Noah Syndergaard's a four, maybe even a five-win pitcher. That's a pretty nice thing to get. And now they're going the other way where they're they're kind of going the bulk route. And it's like, well, I, I can't 
I can't crush him for the Anderson signing if I like the Noah Syndergaard approach. And it's there's only a handful of those. No, you can. It could be reactionary. Available. They could say, "Well, we tried the one year thing, so let's get someone who's just more dependable." But I don't think Tyler Anderson's bad. I just think this is this is what you get running your organization the way the Angels do. This is just a, a consequence of, of being you, Anaheim. Sorry. We could do the mis- most disappointing. Yeah, this would be a good time now. for it, right? We're, we're really- <laughs> yeah, that's a great segue for you guys. Yeah, I mean, so on the rundown, I set it up as I wrote most disappointing, and then next to it, I wrote any one team, player, I think, or position, which is a, that would be a really weird prompt. But I did make it seem like it could be a team award. And Katie, you crushed this one. You absolutely nailed it. Thank you. Yes, um, I did not understand the assignment, as as the kids say. I thought this was. Just pick the most disappointing entity in baseball, um, not player specific. So I decided to elect my award to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And collectively, uh, yes, just the collective unit of sad. <laughs> because when you look at the Angels, they did have a winter where they addressed their needs. They, they signed Syndergaard. They looked and they addressed their pitching. They ha- I know this is a rather old narrative at this point, but they have two superstars two of the greatest athletes on the planet in in mike trout and shohei otani and on may 16th they were in first place in the al west and then just a massive colossal wipeout letdown i don't even know how to how to really describe it but over the course of this next what eight to ten weeks they completely fell in the standings joe madden he's gone all of a sudden, maybe they're selling the team. It just seems so disappointing. I think it was what made this season so disappointing for the Angels is because it seemed when the lockout lifted and opening day started that they should have optimism. Their front office went out and addressed their needs. They had healthy superstars coming back. The division minus the Astros, clearly nobody was really going to beat them this year. But with expanded playoffs, it looked like they had a shot. And for the first six weeks, they were playing like it. And from a fan perspective, when you open your season like that and you already have the optimism that was honestly a little bit overwhelming because it was like baseball's coming back. No more lockout. Oh, maybe we're going to be really good. Oh, we're starting out really good. And then to flame out like that and just back to everything, you know, that hurts, I think, even more than just going out and knowing, okay, we're going to win 60 games this year. And that's a wrap. So congratulations, Angels. Congratulations. Uh, Here's my like imaginary toilet bowl award. (laughs) Maybe next year. Sorry. It'd be funny though, you know, like given that they have these two stars and there's like there's absolutely no vibe or energy around them this year, right? (laughs) No. There's uh everyone's like, oh, we've 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 played this game. We're not gonna do it again. What if they what if they're good this year? I mean, they still have those two stars if the if the the pitching staff breaks right, you know, they just need to figure some things out. And I think it I think the thing that they need to figure out is player development. Mm-hmm. I mean that's often the the thing I'm I, I look at when when something is missing on the back end of a roster, and I, I see some good signs. They hi- they hired Bill Hazel away from Driveline. Um, he was the director of pitching in Driveline. The uh, director of pitching in Driveline before him is the director of pitching for the Dodgers. Uh, you know I think the Dodgers been pretty good at getting the most out of their young pitchers. So I think there's a uh, some signs of hope in the organization. The question is how quickly can they turn it around? This isn't an organization that decided not to play, pay their minor leaguers, decided not to pay their minor league coaches during COVID, and just said, hey, we'll see you when we see you. And, you know, some of that is still coming home to roost. So they need to invest in, in that sort of stuff. They're doing it around the edges. Hopefully they're also doing it up and down uh, the minor league coaching staffs. Uh, and we'll see some of that this year because 
yes, they have five good pitchers now, maybe six. Uh, and the, you need 10, you know, in a starting, in a starting, uh, rotation. And can they, can they manage that when one of their top guys goes down? That's going to be the big question this season, I think. Yeah, I was on board with the Angels before the fast start. I thought I was just the smartest person in the world after the fast start happened. I thought, this is it. This is all the star power coming together. They're just going to have that magical season where they stay healthy at the top of their roster because the concern I had even when I liked them was that their depth isn't very good. And, well, unfortunately, their depth was once again tested and their depth once again came up short. I gave my award to Jose Barrios because I liked the extension when the Blue Jays gave him that seven-year, $131 million extension. I thought it was a good long-term value. I thought he was going to be great for innings, and maybe he still will be. Maybe this will end up being an outlier bad season, but we saw the strikeout rate drop from the 25 to 26% range these last couple seasons down to 19.8%. Home runs became a big problem for him. His highest home run rate over a season his entire career for a full year at least, his debut season back in 2016 actually had a higher home run rate. But this was a, a surprising, rapid fall off for a guy that I just thought was a really safe number two, number three type starter. And we had a point at the end of the year where you wondered in playoff series, you know, how would the Jays possibly even use Barrios? How much would they try to hide him in a playoff matchup given how poorly the season went? And I just... I didn't see that coming at all, especially for a guy who was only 28 years old, too. I mean, this is this was the kind of decline you expect for someone in their early to mid 30s. Yeah, I think it was a lot of it was that command related decline that I'm that I referred to. I think I think next year he'll have a little bit of a bounce back because hopefully some of that command will be figured out. And the stuff was necessarily there. I mean, in terms of velo, in terms of shape, you know, he was pretty much where he used to be. So I'm hoping for a bounce back there. And and for my selection, uh, we may have already seen some of the bounce back. I picked Nick Castellanos uh, because he was the third worst position player uh, qualified batter by Fangraphs. Uh, Yuli Gurriel, Nelson Cruz, and Nick Castellanos. The difference in age uh, there is on the order of five to six years. Uh, he just signed a big contract. The, the expectations were not that he would be a below replacement player. Uh, and the, uh, among the biggest droppers, you have Yuli, Nelson Cruz, Vlad, just because he's coming, you know, down from a near MVP season. Um, Juan Soto. And uh, if you look at the worst outfield defenses, it was Juan Soto and uh, Nick Castellanos. And then he, you know, goes into the postseason and he, he makes like four or five, like, highlight reel grabs. Someone asks him about it and he says, oh, yeah, I'm locked in. You know, I'm, I'm not locked in during the season. You know, sometimes the season gets long. So uh, I recommend uh, some Adderall. Um, uh, you do need an exemption for that, I believe, to not get suspended, right? Yes. Yes. You know, I'm saying go the legal route. <laughs> okay. I'm not saying just like get it off a street corner. There is no medical advice contained in this or any episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. It was a joke. It was a joke. But I do, I do think, you know, if you've got this sort of uh, attention deficit uh, situation going on, then you may, may need to think about it because, uh, you know, I think about this maybe a little bit more than some, um, uh, because I, I watch a, a fair amount of ba basketball. Basketball is my second sport. You know, all of us baseball writers usually have a second sport. Usually I think it's football for me, it's basketball. And one of the things I think about defense is a lot of it is just effort. A lot of it is just caring about it and putting effort into it. Um, and you know, 
we saw the difference between Nick Cassianos with effort and Nick Cassianos without. Some of it, I think, is um, signing a guy who has a poor sense of the zone uh, to a long deal. Um, you know, may not be the best idea, but he still has a great hit tool. And if he puts the effort back into it, I wouldn't be surprised if we were talking about Nick Cassianos for bounce back player of the year next season. All uh, appropriate selections, though, I think, for the silver toilet uh, awards that are, are going <laughs> around. Closing the book on transactions real quick, the Yankees re-signed Anthony Rizzo. That's sort of like the, which of these moves is not like the others? It's mostly relievers, a little bit of pitching, a couple qualifying offers accepted. Surprised that Anthony Rizzo is back with the Yankees? Or is this kind of what you expected to see, Katie? Um, I wasn't too surprised i do think with the reported interest the astros had in anthony rizzo the yankees kind of had a no-brain decision uh you you can't let anthony rizzo go to houston you just can't do that if you're new york and you know i'm still relatively unclear with how new york is going to operate in the off season of course the biggest question is where is aaron judge going to be but i think by re-signing rizzo to that two-year 40 million i mean i certainly contract fits the player um, and I think it is a good sign because it would, in a fan's mind, think, okay, well, if they're going to bring back Rizzo, maybe they will bring back Judge. Maybe they'll try their best. Didn't really have an opinion either way. I thought it made sense. I just felt from the Yankees' perspective, they could not let Rizzo go to Houston. That just would be unforgivable. And I think Yankees fans might lose it a little bit. Well, I think, you know, any qualified player, qualifying offer player, you know, before they before they reject it, it makes it a little bit more likely that they'll re-up with their team. Because that just gives them the chance they're talking to each other and the the signing team uh, doesn't lose a, any sort of draft compensation. They're, they're just motivated to make a deal. Um, and so that's why I wouldn't be surprised. Also, Anthony Rizzo, we were speaking of the rule changes. Anthony Rizzo is one of the people that might benefit the most uh, from a from a change in shift shift rules. So if you've just gotten yourself a guy who might... Uh, add you know fifteen to twenty points of OBP uh, by no fault or you know work of his own. Uh, I think you do that. Yeah, I think a career high pull rate for him over a full season here in twenty twenty two forty eight point one percent shift rules should help nudge that average and OBP back up. Nice to see the barrel rate for Anthony Rizzo at a career best ten point nine percent here in twenty twenty two as well. So not really a surprising move for me. Probably a good one. Seems like the right sort of terms. Two years is kind of ideal if you're the Yankees in this case, because two years from now you're talking about a guy that probably is going to have to go year to year and because of the back injuries he's had too might become a little bit less reliable than he's been these last couple of seasons. Uh, Martin Perez and Jock Peterson are the two players that accepted qualifying offers, by the way, and Perez, I, I, I understand, I guess, why the Rangers offered him one. I was not at all surprised that he took it, and I was stunned, stunned that the Giants actually offered Jock Peterson a qualifying offer. So I was not surprised when he accepted it either because I think he fits into that group of players we were talking about earlier, Katie, where defense isn't there, he's a masher, but a positionless masher is kind of replaceable. Right, but I also think that the Giants made it very clear they want to contend next year. I think Franz Aidi is going to spend, and he made that evidently very clear with extending Peterson that qualifying offer. I think if the Giants were better in 2022, if they were all around a more solid team, we would value collectively the Peterson signing as much higher than we did. I mean, that was kind of a steal. He really impacted that Giants club, a club that had a really kind of down year when you think about it. Um not at all surprised that either accepted. I think uh, 
pretty telling where the Rangers are at. They look like to be the team that are that's finally ready to make the jump. I mean, they have Bochi, new owner, uh, new kind of front office look. They're ready. They need pitching. They really liked Perez. They made it pretty known over the trade deadline. They weren't looking to move him. So not surprised with Martin Perez staying in Texas. Not surprised Peterson is staying in San Francisco, given his raise. But I do think that he really impressed the Giants front office with what he did in his role. And I think he's exactly the type of player that profiles well for what San Francisco is looking to accomplish. Yeah. And he's, again, another uh, real pull lefty that may that may benefit from these new rules. Um, just a, a player that fits really well into what the Giants are trying to do with mixing, matching and, and getting the most out of their players. Um, and then I, I think there's an underrated aspect. I hadn't thought about that actually. You, you sort of mentioned that they're they're kind of almost almost signaling that they're willing to spend. Like there's a there's a signal value, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you just let guys go and then you try to go to judge and be like, no, we're gonna win, and you'd be like, well, why did you just let all these guys go? Like imagine if they traded away players because they were too expensive, you know? And, and if they did a lot of the trade deadline to get cheaper and. Then, uh, then free agents be like, no, no, you're obviously a team that's going into a rebuild or, or trying to cut corners. So, you know, doing this is saying, no, no, we're we're a team like the Yankees. We're a team that wants to keep our best hitters. So, uh, I like that. The Martin Perez one is, I I don't know that I love the Don uh, the the um, uh, Jock Peterson one, but it makes more sense to me than the Martin Perez one because uh there's uh for me there's no meaningful difference in martin perez's strikeout rate walk rate pitch mix pitch below almost anything that he did last year and then he did the four years before and the four years before he had an era over five so i don't i don't really uh, yes i know that his home run rate uh dropped in half but home run is rate is is one of those notoriously fickle things that changes from season to season um and i'm not willing to think that uh, just because he threw his changeup two percentage points more last year, uh, this is what you get. So uh, I think he'll return to a kind of a low mid fours ERA. Maybe he'll be valuable to them as a fifth starter, but he's not somebody that if they make the playoffs, I would expect to see on the playoff roster, which, you know, for $20 million, I hope you would play that guy in your playoff, <laughs> your playoff roster. That's the same takeaway I had from a skills perspective. Is it just seemed like, good fortune on home runs and that was the biggest difference in 2022 martin perez versus the previous versions that we've seen um, in texas and elsewhere over the course of his career maybe they see something that i don't at this point i guess i'll have to leave my mind open to that possibility and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsn's varies by zip code and package high-speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply when you get injured you don't want to wait for answers and options That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, Nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. 
Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Post-operative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Let's get to some perfect pairings. It's that time of year, right? You want to put things together that go together, and we're going to do this with free agents and new clubs. We're going to have one hitter and one pitcher each. Katie, we'll start with your hitter. What's the perfect match between a free agent hitter and a new club? Okay, well, um, I'll start with you. If you're, if you're a Yankees fan, maybe mute for the next couple minutes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe go for a little walk outside, get some fresh air. I think Aaron Judge to San Francisco is a layup. Now, obviously, he is going to cost a significant amount of money. He deserves that money. Well, he did. He had a historical season in 2022, likely the AL MVP. Uh, I just can't picture a better reunion for or a better match for San Francisco a team that has notoriously always had a superstar. They haven't had one and they didn't have one in 2022. And you saw the attendance in San Francisco significantly take a hit. You have a front office. Again, we talked about this with Farhan Zaidi willing to spend. He wants to spend. Uh, He was one of the most popular uh, front office execs during the GM meetings in Vegas last week in terms of reporters wanting to talk to him because the industry perception is that the giants will be pretty aggressive over the winter. Now let's let's do the well, let's go through what we know about Aaron Judge. It's Bay Area native. Everyone likes to go home, right? But the Giants, in terms of not having a a superstar, they also have not had a a player that has hit thirty or more home runs in a singular season since two thousand and four. That is the Barry Bonds era. When you think of the San Francisco Giants, you think of guys. You think of a, a prestigious organization, stars, lots of power. Lots of good vibes. Wasn't a lot of that in 2022. They've significantly missed a Barry Bonds-esque hitter. They've significantly missed a home run hitter. Even when you think about Buster Posey's MVP seasons, you think about Hunter Pence in the early to mid 2000, or, uh, 2010s, that era. None of them hit 30 home runs. I think the Giants, if they're looking to rebuild and reestablish themselves upon what is looking to be a pretty competitive division in the NL West, you're going to have to go against the Padres, the Dodgers, the Diamondbacks are young, but promising. You need to start rebuilding your club and you start with a superstar. Therefore, you start with Aaron Judge. That one seems like it's down to two teams. It seems like it's leave for the Giants or stay with the Yankees. I don't think a mystery team is actually lurking in the weeds when we get to Aaron Judge's eventual destination. No, no. The one thing that he doesn't solve for the Giants is, uh, you know, up the middle or, or just defense in general. But I guess, you know, as a corner outfielder, he's going to be a plus defender. So that'll be fine. I don't know that I want to run him out there at center field for much longer, uh, but um, I think uh, all the rest of what you said is totally true. And I think that the the whole vibe, the whole th- the whole Farhan Zaidi mix and match thing works a lot better if you've got you know sort of a, a foundation. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, I, that's what we saw in twenty twenty one, right? Yeah, the difference between twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two is just you know in any given year maybe you can mix and match your way up to you know the runs you need to get. But it works a lot easier in 2022 if you had Aaron Judge at the bottom of that foundation. We're trying to figure stuff out around him. So, you know, I think that's a really great one. Um, I had, you know, sort of a reaction to the Teoscar Hernandez thing. But uh, I had 
Brandon Nimmo to to the Jays. And in fact, uh, Brandon Nimmo and Aaron Judge were both on my piece today uh, in terms of uh, potential bargains. You can look over at Fangraphs. They have these crowdsourced contracts. Uh, they're usually pretty good with their with their crowdsourcing their contracts. And then you can take the projections. You can just look at how that fares uh, in in you know according to what the market has done. And Nimmo and Judge actually they're a three hundred million dollar deal for Judge uh, and a hundred million dollar deal for Nimmo. Both of those are actually showing up as quote unquote values. And I think the 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 reason for both is is injury risk. Um, you know Nimmo's been a little bit worse recently. Uh, but, um, you know, both of them had a good season in their last season. And when you look at predicting injury, the last season is actually the most important, uh, for projecting injury. Uh, what happened before that doesn't affect your injury projection that much. So both of them coming off of, uh, good, healthy, full seasons means they might get these deals and they might actually be, uh, uh values. So it, it does have something to do with how much you can stomach Yes, Nimmo has had injuries to his hip, which kind of can be long-term. Uh, Judge has had some long-term injuries, and he seems he is a big guy. People are right to point that out. Uh, but uh, if that gives you any bit of value, both of these guys are going for less than eight million dollars per win, which is, you know, what the normally what the what the what uh, you know the market pays. And the Jays now really want to get George Springer out of center field. I think he was the thirty-fourth best defensive center fielder last year by outs above average sitting there uh, between Aaron Hicks and Jonathan Daza uh, and uh, we all saw that the Yankees themselves wanted to get out from the Aaron Hicks in center field situation when they traded for Harrison Bader and I think some of the Teoscar Hernandez deal in Toronto is we're looking for a new center fielder so he's going to be a very different one then their last outfielder in Tasker Hernandez is going to come in very OBP heavy, not going to swing at anything outside the zone, not going to hit the ball super, super hard. Uh, but I think, you know, Nimmo and Swanson might be a better fit for the Blue Jays next year than Tasker Hernandez. Yeah, I think those uh, those are both good calls with Judge going to San Francisco and Nimmo going to the Jays. And I had Wilson Contreras initially paired up with the Astros. And I've had a last-minute change of heart, and it kind of ties into the idea of credibility and spending money and being all-in. I actually think Wilson Contreras to the Giants is a better pairing the more I think about it because really I think the Astros, a, a catcher. the Astros have a young catcher, Yainer Diaz, who I think is more interesting than Joey Bart is by comparison. I think Joey Bart's a backup catcher. I think he's a part-time player based on what he's shown us so far. I know he's a little bit better after his demotion to AAA than he was prior to the demotion, I'm still not convinced that you want him behind the plate for 110, 120 games. Contreras is another way to get a lot better at a position of need if you're the Giants. If you're going to go to the trouble of making the massive offer to Aaron Judge and getting that done, you might as well get better behind the plate too. Go ahead and get Wilson Contreras. It might not be realistic to get Judge plus one of the shortstops from a cost perspective, but it probably is more realistic to get Judge plus Wilson Contreras. Between those two players, you could be a dozen wins better if everything goes right in 2023. I think that would be a really nice boost for them at a spot where they frankly just need more than what they got from Joey Barr. It's been a tough transition, of course, since losing Buster Posey. Let's get to some of the, the pitching ideas we have for perfect match between pitcher and new organization. Eno, I'll throw this one to you first. 
Uh, I might have already sort of teased it with Carlos Rodon and how I think, you know, teams need stuff. Uh, and I think that the, the reason that the Rangers and Rodon might make a good uh, match is that they've done a decent job at gathering the flotsam and jetsam. That sounds so mean. Um, gathering the meat and bones of the of the rotation. That's much better. Your meat and bones. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, Gray, Dunning, Odorizzi, Perez, these are all kind of three fours in my mind. Uh, Gray is the one that could rise to kind of a two three, um, but they're lacking an ace. Uh, and maybe Jack Leiter will get there. He's having some developmental foibles right now. Uh, he's on his way, perhaps. But uh, it takes a lot of pressure off of Jack Leiter if you see Rodone at the top and uh, you get you you get into the rotation. However, you get into the rotation. So um, you know the difference between Rodone and someone like uh, Degrom um, and, and Verlander might be uh, you know fifteen million dollars a season. I kind of think Rodone, with his injury risk, is going to go for more of a Gossman Ray deal, where it's kind of in that five. Uh, what do they what do they go for like 110 120 like in there um and uh you also get him for longer uh and you're hoping with like Simeon and Seeger that you're sort of building something longer i don't think the rangers are the type of situation where you take a jacob degrom you know put it on top and you're like hey world series here you come could be but that's what they're looking for they're looking for an ace I'm going to stick with the NL West theme that I have going on, and I am going to just just pencil in Chris Bassett to the Padres. I think when you're looking at San Diego's rotation, there was a lot of trials and tribulations for that starting pitching squad throughout the regular season, but you saw the potential of that rotation in the postseason. What an incredible run San Diego had. Now let's look at how this 2023 rotation is lining up. You have Shamanaya and Mike Clevenger, both free agents. So you can technically slate you Darvish, Joe Musgrove with his five-year extension, and Blake Snell as your top three. Well, Darvish and Snell are out after 2023. Their contracts are up. So you're looking at a window of 2024 where you just have Joe Musgrove with your current staff. If the Padres bring in Chris Bassett, you all of a sudden have, who's, I don't really think Chris Bassett is necessarily an ace caliber pitcher, although I, I he was with Oakland, of course. Um, but you also have to compare apples and oranges with that pitching staff to San Diego's pitching staff at the time. Chris Bassett is not necessarily your number one guy. He does not need to be when you have guys like Darvish and Musgrove and even Snell. I know maybe not the most encouraging season from him, but definitely showed flashes there of what they could expect for him next season. So if you slot in Bassett as that two or three guy, you're all of a sudden looking at a really strong overall rotation. We look at a lot of rotations in baseball based on the top two. So let's see Philadelphia, for example. Uh, on Nolan Wheeler and then three, four, five are kind of a little bit weaker, but because those aces are so strong, it balances out. Chris Bassett going to San Diego makes the rotation. It may not have that like number one dominant bona fide ace, but you all of a sudden have four arms that are very, very strong, very, very formidable. And you feel a lot better with your chances there. Yeah. I think it's, it's an important replacement for them. You know, with with the innings they lost and the expectations they had for Clevenger, especially, I think Bassett can be a level above the 2022 version of Mike Clevenger. And if there's some value to this, we saw, you know, uh, the Astros benefit from this. But, you know, when you get to game four in a long series, if you can get to a seven game series, having a fourth starter that you are confident in actually does matter, you know, (laughs) because they're, you know, the Phillies did make it far and they didn't necessarily have that. But there were games where you're like, 
Christian Javier or bullpen game? You know, hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that would help the Padres. They have aspirations to make the World Series. I think, you know, having a great game for a starter makes sense, too. All right. I'm on board with both uh, of these proposals. I do not expect you to be on board with mine. I, <laughs> Yours is out of left field. <laughs> Here's where I'm going with this. I actually think Jacob deGrom and the Orioles are a perfect pairing in free agency. You're nuts. Before you throw your phone <laughs> or start listening to classic rock or whatever it is you're going to do after you're done with this podcast, consider that the Orioles are one of those young teams, much like maybe the Rangers a season ago, where they need to start getting some impact players to go with the young talent coming through. They need that credibility because you never, ever link the best available free agents with the Orioles. They've been in this long-term rebuild for so long that they've been an afterthought. And when you look at what's going well for them, they're loaded with position player prospects. They have many of those players in the big leagues and about to be in the big leagues. They're probably going to trade some guys that we haven't seen debut yet to get more young pitching because they're so thin on pitching. If you go out with a super cheap payroll and you could you say, Jacob DeGrom, you want $42 million a year for three years? We can do that. It doesn't ruin your franchise because it's not a seven or eight year deal for a pitcher where the guy can break. It's not a, a potential Jordan Zimmerman type contract or anything like that. You don't have to worry about that. You bring in DeGrom and you think about this more from the perspective of we have expanded postseasons. All you got to do is get there. And if you have DeGrom in that rotation, you can beat anybody on any given day. So you've got that spot covered. And then you start to backfill with the guys you have. Continue developing the young pitching that you have. Grayson Rodriguez could be a big part of their plans this year, right? So you have him, get the guys like Voth and Wells and Kyle Bradish and Dean Kramer. Like it, It's a nice group of depth guys sort of already there, but you need that top-end option because you can't put that on Grayson Rodriguez right away. And even if Rodriguez is every bit as good as you expect, you need why two. Why not have a one-two, yeah. You need a one-two. So why not? If, if you're not going to go out and spend money on position players for four-plus years, Go get Jacob DeGrom if you're the Orioles. They took a big step forward this year, but fancy yourselves a real playoff team and go out there. And if you bring in DeGrom, if you're the team that comes out of nowhere to do that, you can go get other players because other free agents will believe that you are trying to win finally after several years of rebuilding. So it's a little bit galaxy brain, but I actually think it makes a lot of sense given their needs and given that they're close to being a competitive team. Yeah, I mean, they're looking. I, I I agree with the idea that they could do like a targeted spend and get somebody, and almost I, I think a little bit more like the Manny Machado deal in San Diego, where they're like, we're building towards something, and we're going to put this building block in place in place maybe before you even know exactly what we're building. Um, I would rather as a position player, you know, <laughs> like I just rather that they had that building block as a position player, just because of especially with Degrom's injuries. Um, but maybe you sign DeGrom and it's more likely that Justin Turner or somebody like that, you know, just decides, hey, DeGrom's there, you know, maybe we can make a run at this. Uh, so I, I see I see that sort of cascading effect. Um, I think, you know, if I'm going to put my, uh, my stamp of approval on something, I'd rather say like Carlos Correa or uh, one of the shortstops, because I think Gunnar Henderson can be the shortstop. You can sign one of those guys, maybe give him shortstop for a year, or maybe even move him to third right away. But one of the big four shortstops to Baltimore, um, I think, uh, makes about as much sense. So I guess I'm agreeing with you on some level. 
they got room to do both, right? I was surprised where we last year when the Rangers got Seager and Simeon. Like that was that was like, oh, they got one? That that makes sense. They got two? Holy crap, they did it. Like the Orioles got plenty of room financially to get two splashy free agents. But I think it's hard to get the first one if you don't make the impact move. To get the seven or eight year commitment from one of those shortstops is actually harder for them if they don't also say, we're going to try and win now too. We have DeGrom and all this young talent. So we're going to be good the entire time you're here, not just for the back half of the contract or the last five or six years out of the eight years. Yeah, see, I'm making believers out of you know, sort of, because he's being nice. Katie's just looking at me like, no, Look, it was a happening. well thought out argument. It was well researched. It was compelling. That's when mom I'm pats you on the it. head. I'm not buying it at all. Yeah. Okay. That was uh, that was Home Alone two grade thinking. I think right there. All right. Well, hey, what, what can you do? One more topic to get to. It's a Thanksgiving Day draft. This will be a little bit of fun. Four rounds, and because we are reasonable people. We're not putting turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy in the pool of things to be drafted. We all get to have that. That's that's a given. Everyone gets turkey, how, how about mashed potatoes, and gravy. Desserts are part of the draft. All right. I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to when the MLB Vertical did their draft. We did like a mock draft during the lockout, and I was so bad. I actually made uh, our comprehensive article of like one of the worst drafters oh, <laughs> because I drafted nice. instead of drafting a city, I drafted Tampa Bay and I made sure to specify like the Bay, which is not a city. Anyway, I got why that needed to be in print. I don't know. So <laughs> I am prepared for this draft. All I'm right. prepared to make to make up for it. It's a bounce back opportunity for I you. And read read three mock drafts. <laughs> You oh. read three mock drafts of Thanksgiving Day drafts? Wow. <laughs> yes, I did my research. I'm a fantasy okay. guy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, Katie has the first pick. Eno goes second. I will go last, and we'll do a snaking order, so I do get two things together when I make my turns. Oh, I didn't, re- I didn't realize it was a snake. Mm. You don't want to give up the first overall pick for picks three and four, though, do you? No. Okay. Yeah, you can, you keep, you can keep the first pick. It's fine. Well, I know what my first overall pick would be, but I it's an unpopular pick, so I'm going to go with popularity. I'm going mac and cheese. Yeah, secure uh, the mac and cheese. Good choice, because it wasn't going to be there. It wasn't going to make it, it to two not. of my picks. So It was not going to be very there. very interested to hear what, we'll see if it falls through my grasp. Um, do, 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 do. I have two very similar things, and one is considered dessert and one isn't. That might be a clue. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie, all right, it's a classic, and I, uh, I'll i admit, like I for years didn't like pumpkin pie because it was kind of what you traditionally see in the grocery store, where it's just crust, plain brown filling goo over the top, and then, you know, lots of Cool Whip, and that's fine. Like, if you just need a vessel to eat Cool Whip, I'm not judging <laughs> you for that. I felt like the flavors and textures were a little bit wanting, but I did have a pumpkin pie that we made would have been two Thanksgivings ago, and it had some bourbon whipped cream, and it had a crunchy topper on it, and the changes in the flavor and texture with those additions made it fantastic. So pumpkin pie is uh, moving up my board, and I think it's a good choice in round one. I'm going to take, if it's allowed, nah, yeah, it is allowed, because meats, other meats are also eligible. I want ham. I want ham and turkey. I'm a, a two-meat Thanksgiving dinner kind of person. So give me give me the old spiral ham because I don't really eat ham other than that and maybe around like Easter time or something. And usually it's because someone else was kind enough to make it for me, not because I took the effort to make myself a ham. 
And then I need a dessert as well because I'm afraid that with four picks before I go again, you guys each might snatch up another dessert or two, and that would be catastrophic. I'm going to take apple pie off the board because I really have to have apple pie on Thanksgiving. And usually it's not the only pie that I'm eating, but can't go without it. Bold. I didn't even think about desserts, which is like my favorite thing in the world. Um, so already a flaw in my draft strategy. All right. But, but uh, I'm going to... Hold on. I think okay. it's me again, right? Snake? Yeah. Oh, is it? oh yeah, I, even, yeah. I can't even snake right. So. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I am once again looking at two things that you could consider dessert. Um... I think that's the way I'll lean a little bit more towards uh, main course. I'm going to take some cornbread. Cornbread? Okay. Mm, I like cornbread. Take that cornbread. It's very dessert-like, though. Cornbread to Eno in round two. Interesting. A sleeper pick. Um, I'm going to go... I'm going to carb load. I'm going to go with stuffing. I don't think you can go wrong with that. Yeah. That's where I thought Eno might go. I'm a little surprised. So, Eno, you're not a stuffing person? I have sausage stuffing on my list. I don't know if I still if that's still eligible or not. This counts as that, I think, all in right. this case. I think so. so, too. Yeah. I don't love all stuffings, though. And if it doesn't have the sausage, I'm like, yeah, it's some bread with some stuff on it. Yeah, I don't like the particularly wet presentations. Maybe that's more dressing than stuffing. I forget what mm-hmm. the actual difference is, but I do like a <laughs> something that's got a little more texture to it. Texture is very important to me with food. I don't want to eat paste. Mm. Who knew? Katie, your third round pick. You get two here. I know I'm debating. I was trying to think of like a, a miracle dessert, but I think I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the with rolls again uh, with my carb theme. You got to have rolls. Dinner rolls. All right. Dinner rolls in the third to Katie. Edo gets mm. his third round pick. So I was choosing at the very beginning between pumpkin pie and sweet potatoes. <laughs> like very similar things. Yeah, you don't really need both. <laughs> I mean, it's great to have both, but if you are trying to balance out your plate a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, I'm just going to go with deviled eggs because I love deviled eggs. (laughs) See, part of the Thanksgiving thing is that there are no rules. You can make anything you want and anyone will be happy to have it, right? Like, I don't think the traditional five things from Thanksgiving are all must-have essentials. Like, if you want to bring a smoked brisket to the party, hey, bring bring a smoked brisket. Who's going to complain? Who's going to complain about that? I'm going to be real happy with that. I should draft a smoked brisket. Why why put everyone to sleep with the turkey? Yeah, I mean, why not just make it like a three-meat combo? All right, I've got a dessert. I've got a meat. I should probably get some kind of side in here, too. Uh, And since Eno graciously left sweet potatoes on the board, I'm going to take a a sweet potato casserole on here. you got to get the little marshmallow topper on there, a little bit of brown sugar. Uh, It it is basically a dessert before the dessert, pre-dessert, if you will, but don't judge me. There are no rules here. And what are you drinking? Ooh, I got a drink at the end here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off on my drink. I'm gonna take one more food. We get one more food we can cram in. I'm gonna oh, take the, yeah, I'm gonna take Brussels sprouts. Oh, oh, that's a good one. Brussels sprouts. The I, I like them with bacon in there too. Yep. <laughs> yeah, another meat, of course, because we don't have enough meat going here. Um, so Brussels sprouts will be my fourth rounder and my my green. You got to have something green on your plate if uh, if my mom's around. She's gonna make you take some greens. So all this preparation work that I did and I got the number of rounds wrong. Yeah, I mean, I did make a draft board in the rundown. There's that rundown that, that we know and love. Yeah, you know, didn't look at the rundown. Surprise, surprise. Um, I, I did look. Uh, I have run out of things. And so I'm going to go off my board and it's going to go terribly. I don't hate uh, cranberry sauce. And so I'm being more traditional. I'm going to get some cranberry sauce on my plate. I do put it on my plate and enjoy it. And I do mix it with a turkey. 
it's nice to have on there. So let me, I'm going to throw that in there. No, cranberry is very, very underrated. It's a great Thanksgiving side. It's just stuck around to the end for me. Life, lifeline. Do you ever just eat it on its own though? Like, like it's jello or do you, do you prefer to put it on things? You know when it's really important? No, I never eat it by myself. That's weird. Um, but when it's really important is when you're making the sandwich the next day. Yep. Yeah, you have to have it on the sandwich. It's so important on the sandwich. Maybe you've had Capriotis at some point. There used to be one next to the Rotowire office when I worked there. And they have a sandwich called the Bobby. And it's basically Thanksgiving dinner on a roll. That's what it, It's a carb fest. And it's got the... It's got a cranberry jelly on it, and that makes the sandwich. It kind of puts it over the top. So ever since I started eating that sandwich, I had a greater appreciation for cranberries at the Thanksgiving table. It's very complimentary. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a Scotty Pippen. <laughs> I am, I'm going to throw this one out there for all of the pie haters in the world. One, I don't get you. I don't understand you. Um, <laughs> But there's got to be options, right? So I'll I'll do a nice festive fall spice cake for my dessert. Whoa, my mom actually makes a really cake. good one. Good one of those. Is that like um, kind of like a pumpkin bread with some frosting on it, more or less? You can. Um, you can put some frosting on there. She, I don't know how she does it. I don't have any of her culinary expertise, but hers is like always super moist. It's like in a bunt cake form. Uh, really good. Throw some pine nuts in there. Uh, just ten out of ten. Uh, but texture, texture. Look, so important. I'm looking at my very carby dinner selection, and I think I have to throw in. Uh, I think I have to throw in green bean casserole, just just to like make it a little bit more healthy. Not a lot. You're going green bean casserole in place of the spice cake. Or are you adding a fifth round pick? Did I not count right? This might have been one of my worst drafts. No, oh, no. no vegetables. No vegetables allowed. Keep the spice cake. All right. Uh, you do get a beverage selection. You could, could drink any your beverage. spice cake. You could make it a, like a milkshake kind of thing. Like yeah. What we've learned is never invite me to your fantasy football draft. <laughs> um, cool. My drink, my drink of choice. Um, I'm going to go. You have to do Martinelli's apple cider. Mm. I don't care if that makes me 12 years old. I can put down an entire bottle of apple cider before dinner and still be ready to go. So that's my drink. That's a good call. I love it. I was tempted uh, to go with an imperial, big imperial stout. Um, it seems like dad's going to fall asleep after dinner anyway, might as well just lean into it. However, um, I, I think that you can reach a point of saturation where everything is so sweet and thick, where there's not a differentiation. So I'm going to go with a Saison, which, uh, is a Belgian beer that has a little bit of tartness to it. Um, it's effervescent, it's sparkly, uh, and it's not super sweet. So it's a little bit of kind of a tiny bit of bitterness to kind of offset all the cranberry yam sweetness on my plate. I think that's a good choice. I also considered a, a barrel aged stout. It's a very good holiday to crack those open because you get people to share them with and they're good sippers anyway. And you got the nice base to help soak it up a little bit. Uh, but if you said you can have any beer on Thanksgiving, I actually want King Sue. That's that's the beer that I want from Toppling Goliath. Uh, just you know, citrusy, sort of hazy, really good IPA. I I think it's my favorite of the, the widely available IPAs, stuff that you can get in a lot of places as opposed to something you can only get you know, very close to where you live. So that would be my choice or something similar. The smaller Sue. Pseudo Sue, yeah. Pseudo Sue. But King Sue is what I want. Named after the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex in Chicago in the museum there. Yeah. Oh, I've seen her. 
Yeah. <laughs> Lots of trips to Chicago and the NL Central. Lots of things to do. Uh, all right. Well, I hope everyone has a fantastic Thanksgiving. We do have a few more episodes of the pod dropping between now and then, but we figured if you were thinking about your meal, thinking about things you wanted to bake, it'd be good to do the draft now because you can dig up some recipes and perhaps I'll, I'll get the itch to dig up that pumpkin pie recipe from a couple of years ago because it, it changed my mind completely about a dessert that I thought was just something that gross adults ate and... Uh, then I became a gross adult. So. That's right. <laughs> Look at us. I mean, we all were happy about Brussels sprouts. Like, yeah, it's right. a lot about where we are in life. All it took was bacon and brown was sugar. On my list. <laughs> it took meat and sugar to make Brussels sprouts delicious. But hey, we did it. Uh, if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for a dollar a month at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper, the Athletic Baseball Show returns next week. Always got the green light here. Green 